What's going on, everybody? Welcome. Uh, coming to you live once again from the parents' house. We got episode eight of the Essential Question podcast, and and it's a special episode today. Um, I know I did a news episode, something kind of similar to this, uh, for episode six, uh, where I talked about Afghanistan and tried to give like a fresh perspective. So I figured. Since this week is such a momentous week in American history, uh, it's the 20th year anniversary since uh, it's been 20 years since 9-11 happened back in 2001, back when your boy was merely 11 months old. Uh, So I figured, you know, I would talk about this Uh, 20 years. You know, a lot has happened, obviously, since then. And I figured what better a thing to do than to break this all down. So we're going to do a little news breakdown Changavi show ish thing uh maybe Changavi report today uh and really break down this whole issue i want to talk about the big picture i want to talk about the small kind of micro details um and a little bit of everything uh hopefully get all the perspectives uh in there so without further ado let's begin the Changavi show 9-11, I mean, frankly, was the turning point of the world, guys. Uh, if you think about it in, in any sense of it, uh, the modern world really would not have existed without, like, you you can't think of events that would have happened in basically the last 20 years if 9-11 hadn't happened. It's almost like most things that have happened since 2001 have been sort of reactionary to 9-11. I mean, mostly in regards to foreign policy. Um it really shifted the way I feel like the rest of the world thinks about Americans, uh, you know, whether that be Europe, whether that be Arab countries, whether that be mid the Middle East, Asia, whatever. I feel like our relationships have definitely shifted. I mean, look at the way that we have reacted to 9-11, and I feel like people have gotten more scared of us considerably. I mean, there's no longer this whole idea of, oh, you know, I'm so-and-so, and, you know, there's... People don't think of Americans as diplomatic anymore, is my point. I feel like they think of us as kind of war hawks um, based on just the behavior of the last 20 years, truly. And I feel like that is uh, that has definitely been one reason that that uh, shift in thought has taken place. Uh, so that is, you know, uh, I feel like definitely one of the reasons why we're tur- why this 9-11 was a turning point. Again. I mean, I want to emphasize this, and I think this is a point that I really want to emphasize throughout this whole, uh, you know, uh, show. 9-11 was an extremely preventable attack, guys. I don't care what your parents say to you. I don't care uh, what you have researched or if you're Democrat or Republican or independent or libertarian. I don't give a shit. Okay, 9-11 was completely preventable. You look at any research, you do any, you read any amount of articles, you can see that there were telltale signs that were very, very clear to the American government that 9-11 was extremely preventable. Okay, so let, let's talk about this. Let's talk about some of these telltale signs that I have mentioned. There, Did you know that before 9-11, the CIA and the FBI weren't even communicating? So they wouldn't like intercommunicate within departments. They wouldn't share intelligence with one another. How freaking stupid does that sound? That your two biggest for, like intelligence agencies in this country are not even sharing information with one another. They're not sharing information. I get the FBI is a domestic intelligence group and the CIA is supposed to be international. But don't you think that those two kind of overlap in the case of 
don't you think if the CIA director at the time and the FBI director had met for lunch and shared memos, they would have been able to figure this out or at least figure out pieces of this? I, I feel like this is that's ridiculous. That is ridiculous that the CIA and the FBI weren't even talking, right? Like they both had information, but they were like, huh, they didn't think to share it with one another. Like, I get why the American education system now preaches collaboration because of shit like this. I mean, I'm not even trying to make a joke out of that. That's just, it's so dumb. It's so dumb. The CIA and the FBI legitimately, like literally the reason, one of the main reasons why 9-11 happened is because the CIA and the FBI didn't talk to each other. They both had intelligence on the terrorists. They both knew that Al-Qaeda was a thing. And they both knew that Al-Qaeda was a threat to America and there was going to be an attack. And they didn't do anything. They didn't do anything. They, they didn't even like bother to like text each other, right? Like, or phone call, nothing. There was no such communication. That is shocking. That is very shocking. Another thing, our boy Masood, the guy I've been talking about for the last two weeks, well, his dad, not uh, not Masood himself, but his dad, Ahmed Masood, Ahmed Shah Masood, was a warning that this attack was going to take place. He was like, guys, guys, there's going to be a terrorist attack that takes place in a developing country. Not really sure if it's the United Kingdom or the United States, but watch out, developed nations, watch out, watch out. And this guy was a pretty big politician in Afghanistan, and they didn't even listen to him. So I don't know what to tell you. I don't know what to tell you. Like, you... You had people on the ground in Afghanistan telling you, hey, listen, there's going to be an attack taking place. You had a lack of communication between the CIA and the FBI. Yeah, of course this was going to happen. These were just pre very preventable things. You need to take into account what Afghan politicians are saying. Even if your intelligence agencies aren't talking, I feel like George W. Bush should have put point A to point B together and been like, huh, maybe we should do a little bit of investigation into that claim made by Masood, who is on the ground. In Afghanistan. I don't know. I don't know. And the intelligence wasn't like, it wasn't like cryptic intelligence. Like, oh, like there could be a trend that could lead to this attack. It was pretty clear. Okay. They, they were tracking pretty much all of these guys who were coming in and out of the United States, going all over the world to travel to these Al-Qaeda meetings to figure out the attack. There was very clear intelligence that pointed to the fact that these guys were pretty serious threats. Okay, to American democracy and to America. And there was no such accountability by either intelligence agency, by the president, by the executive branch, by the legislative branch. Our government hella let us down, is my point. So, like, I'm not trying to play the blame game and be like the US government caused their own demise, but like, come on. They, these were all so, these were all such preventable things. And I mean, that's the point I'm trying to, I'm going to hammer home, I think, is that 9-11 was preventable. But also, like, I was thinking about this earlier, and I was, you know, trying to put this into perspective. 9-11, like, I can't think of a, what a world without 9-11 would have looked like. I don't know. I there Maybe it wouldn't have been 9-11. Maybe it would have been another terror attack. I just, there was no way that if 9-11 hadn't happened, something else wouldn't have happened, right? Like, I feel like if 9-11 were to have shut down, maybe we would have gotten ahead of it. Maybe America would have been ahead of the war on terror. I don't know. But 9-11 was a freaking wake-up call for this country. And 
it was a wake up call for the world, really. I mean, you have very few turning points. I feel like in history, I, I mean, you could point to the the dinosaurs, the death of the dinosaurs, right? That literally changed the world. Um, the year nineteen sixty eight, when MLK died, when RFK was assassinated, right? Like that was definitely a turning point in America. Not necessarily the world. Vietnam was was in that uh, kind of conversation there. Um, you know, there, there are other years, the 1929, right? The Great Depression, which basically affected worldwide markets. I mean, there, there are a few that I can think of off the top of my head. Of course, there's more. I'm not, I'm not a history teacher or I have a history degree, history degree or anything. But my point is 9-11 was 100%. I think you could mark September 11, 2001 and say, okay, the world changed that day. Yeah, I, I would argue, I wouldn't, you know, put it past that the, the world changed. Um, so that's what I really want to get out of it is this was the turning point of the modern world. And I think we really need to be able to understand that, um, that it was. So let's talk about 9-11 media. Uh, and I don't really want to talk about 9-11 media during the attack because I feel like there wasn't necessarily narratives trying to get across because this whole country was freaked out at that point. So when the attack was happening, I feel like everyone was just in fact find mode, just trying to like figure out like what the hell was going on. Like, was this an accident? Was this just some drunk pilot who accidentally crashed into the World Trade Center? Like, what is going on? Right. So I feel like 9-11 media kind of gets a pass. No journalist had really ever covered an event like that in the live moment. Right. Like this was a crazy, crazy thing that had never happened before. I 100 percent get that. There is. Yeah, so I'm not going to insult the media that was covering 9-11 in the days after and in the day of. Right. Because at that point, I mean, you you're just trying to do what you can as a journalist because you have your own emotions and you also are trying to cover this horrible worldwide tragedy. So pass completely get the pass i'm talking about the media after the fact it's been 20 years since this attack has taken place and there have been movies that have come out about it obviously documentaries that have come out about it and i'm really really critical of a lot of the 9-11 media that comes out okay um but but positive there was this documentary that was recently released on netflix um like i'm talking like three four days ago uh and it was it's called like the turning point, uh, turning point, the war on terror or something like that. If you look it up, you'll find it. It was one of the first pieces that I really thought covered nine 11 and then also covered the follow-up very fairly. I thought it was, it wasn't biased in my opinion. I thought that they, I, I think in the midst of it, you may think it's biased. You may think it's pro America, but as the whole documentary envelops, it's five episodes you start to realize that they give a fair point. They give fair points. They give fair points on both sides, which is, I think, what we have to look for in media. So I thought this documentary was really good because a lot of 9-11 media is very pro-America. I mean, a lot of the TV movie documentaries that I've watched, a lot of the Nat Geos, Nat Geos of the world, the, um, you know, I, I don't know, just every, I feel like most 9-11 media is like, oh, George W. Bush did what he could and credit to the Republican administration. I'm not even trying to get political here, dog. I'm not even trying to get political because George W. Bush, like, yeah, I get it. It was a, it was a first for everybody, right? I'm talking, it was a first for journalists. It was a first for, um, you know, reporter or sorry. It was a first for reporters. It was a first for politicians. It was a first for everyone. No one had seen something like this. So yeah, if there's some mistakes, like I am all for that, right? Like I get that there's going to be mistakes because it's the first time you're ever handling a situation like this, but I think with the media after the fact, I mean, it's been five, 10 years, right? And these things get released and I'm critical of it because it portrays this very pro 
positive American narrative that like everything that they did was so right and correct, which it wasn't. It wasn't right. You do a little more research, you realize like, no, like Bush was wrong in a lot of areas. Cheney was wrong in a lot of areas. This country was wrong in a lot of areas. I, that's why I'm critical of 9-11 media. It's not necessarily like I feel like there is there definitely is credit to be given on both sides. On By both sides, I mean like the Bush, you know, administration, but also like, you know, they, they did some right. I, I do think George W. Bush did some right in the situation, but I think he fucked up tremendously afterwards and he fucked up tremendously during as well. Um, but the media has always tended to side with Bush when it's come to 9-11. Um, or, or I saw this narrative like recently. So this movie vice came out like two, three years ago, back in 2018, I want to say. Um, and that movie is just completely anti-conservative. So that was like the first narrative that I'd seen when it came to nine 11, the movie is not about nine 11, but it does come. The movie is about Dick Cheney. So it tends to drift in the direction of nine 11. Um, so the movie, <laughs> The movie is hella anti-conservative. And they basically, I mean, the way that they cover how Dick Cheney and George W. Bush ran 9-11 was awful. I mean, it was awful. It, it truly did not portray, I feel like, what actually happened in the White House. It was very much just this, like, liberalized version of it, uh, which was like, oh, my God, the conservatives completely messed up. Which, like, yeah, they did mess up. But, like, also, like, what would you have done, Al Gore? Like, I'm pretty sure Al Gore would have done, you know, something similar. Um so yeah, I feel like I feel like uh, Vice is the best example of the anti-conservative narrative, which is something that I've seen recently. I mean, most uh, obviously with Vice, um, and then like the movies, I guess that have been made on 9/11 are also like pretty trash. Most of them are like television movies, so they're not like great or anything. You know, it's just kind of like your classic like uh, attempted heroism and. And like, you know, trying to cover it in the best way that they know how. But, you know, there's just, they're just not great movies. I feel like 9-11 isn't a great subject to, sorry, great subject to to write a film on. Like, I, you know, I feel like it's, I feel like it's not necessarily like the best thing to like be like, oh, you know, like I want to write a movie on this. Probably because the American, the American media that, you know, or American media consumers who are like, you know, are your demographic at the end of the day are probably not really into that. Uh, because this country is very sensitive when it comes to 9-11. And, um, and yeah, I feel like if you have a different take or if you do something wrong or this, that, or the other, like the whole movie is, yeah, it's, it's just not a great subject to write a movie on, uh, in my opinion, because I feel like it'd be really poorly received. And I feel like the movies that have been written on 9-11 have been pretty poor, uh, in general. So that's why you have documentaries which i like and i think are done really well and this was like the netflix documentary was the best one because i mean they actually got guys in the bush administration to be on the interview um and so that was cool uh so i definitely recommend uh that documentary on netflix if you want to go watch but the not the media after the fact with 9 11 has had narratives is my point and why like why why do we have to have narratives like that's <laughs> i just don't understand it but you know to each their own i guess uh, so you want, I mean, you talked about the media and obviously the attack happened and pretty much everyone knows what happens in the attack, right? Four planes crash, um, two planes hit, one hits the North tower, American 11 hits the North tower and United airlines flight 175 hits the South tower. Uh, American 77 hits the Pentagon and then flight 93 was attempted 
but well, they say that it was either headed towards the Capitol or the White House, most likely the Capitol building. Um, and then it crashed in a field in Shanksville, Pennsylvania, due to a passenger revolt, which I'm going to talk about a little later on in the show. So stay tuned for that. Um, but yeah, so that was the attack. Obviously, lots of first responders were lost in the kind of evacuation of the uh, World Trade Center and uh, putting out the fires at the Pentagon and all of that. Very sad day overall for America. Um, but the important part is 9-11 happened, right? It was one day. So how is America going to follow up from it, right? How, what is the follow up to 9-11 going to look like? I feel like this was the part that everybody was like, okay. How how do we go from fucking Al-Qaeda bombing us to destroying them? Because Americans were seething, right? They were foaming at the mouth to get the enemy, which makes sense. I 100% understand the fact why American civilians would be pissed in the moment. And I would be pissed too. I would probably, if, I, if this podcast existed in 2001 and I was this age, I would have been freaking mad. I would have probably been like, yeah, let's go get them. Let's go bomb people. Like, that's what people, that was the American sentiment at the time. It was, let's just take bombs and start bombs away. But that's emotional. That's emotional. And that's the key, right? I feel like, and I'm going to talk about it again later. You, as a, We elect our leaders in this country to have the cool head, to be cool customers when shit like this happens and the rest of the country is emotional and wants you to react in a certain way, right? And yeah, and I feel like that's what, you know, we elect leaders for to be these kind of uh, guiding lights in pressure situations. Uh, did I feel like Bush did that? Well, I'm gonna get to that later. But let's talk about the follow up to 9-11. So 9-11 happens. Everyone's debating on what to do. The follow up to 9-11 is probably one of the worst things that could have happened. Okay. Um, and initially, it didn't start out that bad. I feel like Bush's original intention to go to Afghanistan was not bad. I feel like I would have, I feel like a lot of people would have done the same thing. I feel like that was a very bipartisan effort. And I feel like I, most of the country agrees like, okay, then you got to go and try to find this guy, Bin Laden. You got to go and try to find Khalid Sheikh Mohammed and all these terrorists that were responsible for the attack and tried to basically bring them to justice. I get that. 100% understand that. Okay. You go to Afghanistan. Okay, you you end up there. You basically take over the country in a matter of like four months. You're the strongest military in the world. You spend 33% of your budget on the military. You should be able to do that. Okay, cool. So you take over, but then you realize, holy shit, we don't know what we're doing. We just took over the country and uh, we have Bin Laden. We don't even have Bin Laden. We don't have Khalid Sheikh Mohammed at this point. We literally have nothing. So we're basically effed is basically, is basically what the narrative is. It's like, we're, we're quite essentially fucked. Um, <laughs> and you take over the country, you have no idea. And in this documentary I was watching on Netflix, I got the same vibe. It was, there were generals that were talking who were going to Afghanistan, who were in Afghanistan, who were, you know, on the ground fighting. And they were saying the same thing. They were like, we went there, we took over, and we got, we basically had no long-term objective in Afghanistan. It was basically, the objective was to get Bin Laden and it didn't happen. So what happened, what ended up happening was they take over the country and they corner Bin Laden in these mountains called the Tora Bora Mountains. It's a mountain range in Afghanistan. I uh, don't know exactly where it is. I don't think it's on the border towards Pakistan. I think it's more North. Uh, so they have him cornered, or more South, 
west, I want to say. I don't know what it is. Uh, but they have them cornered in this mountain ridge in the Torbora Mountains. The American troops do, right? And so basically, like, this is your opportunity to get it, right? This is your opportunity to just uh, bring him dead or alive or whatever they wanted um, and basically bring him to Guantanamo Bay. This is your this is your chance, okay? And what did they do? Um, the American government made a colossal mistake. And they didn't send their special ops guys, who are guys who are trained to handle these like heavy situations in which you're trying to capture terrorists. They don't. They, they don't. They don't bring their special ops guys. They're not bringing special ops guys. They send in a troop of. They send in like a, a couple of troops of, of Ghani soldiers who are guys who are barely trained. Okay, keep in mind these are people from Afghanistan who, uh, the literacy rates in Afghanistan are poor. So. What American soldiers had to do is they literally had to start from the ground up with these guys. They had to teach them how to count at like a first, second grade level before they could even teach them like basic like military training because the literacy rates are low. So you're sending a couple of troops there uh, to the Tora Bora Mountains to expecting them. You expect them to capture bin Laden and you don't even send one special ops troop like or one troop of special ops guys from America, from American, from the American military. You don't send one. When you have the most wanted man alive right there in your grasp. And they made the mistake. What did Bin Laden do? He skirted. He pulled. He he left. And Ben became the biggest manhunt slash chase for the next 10 years. You know, you had him in Tora Bora back in what? I think it was oh, 2002, 2003. And then, yeah, you had to chase him around for another eight years. Like, what was that? Okay, fine. All right. You lose Bin Laden. But you have this country of Afghanistan. And you still hang out there. It's 2002, 2003, 2004, 2005. You're still there. What are you doing? Like, I don't understand. Like, and this is where Americans were like, okay, like we got the original intent of going to Afghanistan. We're trying to get these terrorists. And they got a few. They got a few. To their credit, they got Khalid Sheikh Mohammed with collaborating with the Pakistan Intelligence Agency, right? They, they captured him. They captured a few other kind of high-level Al-Qaeda guys, and they sent them to Guantanamo, which is a whole separate other story of what they did there. That's like violating every violation of the Geneva Convention. Um, <laughs> so fantastic job, George W. Bush. But they, they, to their credit, they got a few guys. They still haven't gotten bin Laden. But years go by, and suddenly they're in Afghanistan, and you hear from these soldiers in these documentaries, and they're like, dude, we don't know what we're doing. We're literally like Taliban soldiers are like 15, 16, 17 year old kids who are a little bit younger than these kids who are like uh, than these American military kids who are coming out from high school, flying out to Afghanistan, thinking, thinking in their head that they are getting justice for what happened on 9-11. When in reality, they get there and they're like, what are we doing? What are we doing? Okay. And that's not even the worst part. All right. Afghanistan is a whole debacle. You're, you're there for far too long. They just left. I'm talking like three weeks ago, just left. And now you see what's happening there. Complete disaster. There's more, there's more Iraq. Okay. We haven't even gotten to Iraq yet. So basically at this point in the war, uh, in the war in Afghanistan, they're basically realizing like, okay, we're not going to get bin Laden. Um, we don't know what's next. So Around this time in 2000, around the time of 2003, there are reports, reports, all air quotes, reports that start to come out about this guy by the name of Al-Zarqawi. And Al-Zarqawi is this dude who's in like the northwest corner of Iraq. He has like a, basically he's leading a hate group. Uh, 
a hate group. Yeah, that's what you call it. He, he's leading a hate group. But the thing is, is this hate group isn't getting a lot of traction, right? So there's not a lot of people that are like with him. He doesn't have enough power to the point where he's like, you know, crazy, like, um, what's it called? Like he, he has like, he's not Bin Laden at all. Like he's not even on the scope of Osama Bin Laden. He's literally just, he's all Zarkow. Like he, he's just some guy, like some low level, like threat. Okay. Like uh, if you had to rank all the threats, like Osama Bin Laden is like a 10 out of 10, like must capture, must like, you know, bring to justice. Azarkawi on the terrorist scale is like a three. Okay. Like he's, he's not, he's not necessarily the biggest threat. So anyway, Dick Cheney and George W. Bush basically identify this guy in the Northeast corner of Iraq or Northwest corner of Iraq or something. And he's, you know, kind of just chilling. And, and he's not getting very much traction with his group, but also there's a lot of oil in Iraq and there's a lot of oil. And what is George W. Bush connected to in America is the oil industry. And so the gears and the, the gears start ticking and they start to realize, holy crap, we can get a lot of money if we get to get into Iraq. We just need to find a reason to get into the Iraq war. So at this point, you're already looking like George W. Bush and Dick Cheney went into Iraq for war, but or went into Iraq for oil being one of the reasons, Al Zarqawi being another reason. But then, but then, here's the kicker best reason of them all weapons of mass destruction. WMD. WMD. Where do I start? Oh my God. WMD. Weapons of mass destruction. Okay, apparently, what Saddam Hussein, who is the horrible dictator in Iraq, don't get me wrong, held all of these weapons of mass destruction, aka nuclear weapons, um, and George W. Bush basically rationalized to the American people that they had intelligence that there were several weapons of mass destruction sites all throughout the country uh, where Saddam Hussein was basically stockpiling nuclear weapons. And you can't have that in a terrorist's hand. You can't have that in Saddam's hands. So we have to go to war in Iraq. So basically they go invade Iraq. They cause this whole scene. And then they realize, oh shit, there's no weapons of mass destruction. But the thing is, I think the American government knew the whole time, according to several sources, they didn't really have intelligence that weapons of mass destruction existed. They kind of just like picked and chose their sources. So everything was a little suspect. Dude, they literally went into Iraq with, with trying to get weapons of mass destruction. They basically caused mass destruction in Iraq and then quickly realized, oh, yeah, we there are no weapons of mass destruction here. And George W. Bush has to go on and be like, well, we thought there were weapons of mass destruction according to our intelligence, but but there aren't. And it was like, dude, oh my God. Oh my God. Really? Really? Like, this is where we're at. Okay. Like WMD apparently did not, did not exist the whole time. Um, I think it, Bush kind of admitted it. He didn't necessarily admit it. He lied. He said that they thought they were there. But I think further evidence has come out that weapons of mass destruction didn't exist to the extent, at least, of what America was saying. And then they, like, America went after Al-Zarqawi after, you know, the weapons of mass destruction reason didn't work. So they were like, all right, we got to hammer down Al-Zarqawi. So they kept mentioning this name, Al-Zarqawi, Al-Zarqawi. And according to several journalist reports that I've read, uh, and a lot of other things. I try to keep it balanced. You know, I would give Bush's credit if he was like, yeah, 
Alzheimer Cowie wasn't that dangerous. He was basically, there are several journalists who have said that he was basically pointed as the terror boogeyman and the terror, like propaganda guy uh, in Iraq. Like they were, the, the Americans were propagandizing, basically using Alzheimer Cowie as propaganda for terrorism in Iraq. When in reality, like he, again, he was like a pretty low level threat. Uh, there were some journalists that went on record and basically said he was borderline, like not even that big a threat. And he was almost the equivalent of a drug dealer in terms of threat. I don't necessarily think that's true. I think maybe he was a little higher. He was making hateful statements. And eventually this guy, Alzar Cowie, was like, got so much national attention and worldwide attention because the American government was putting this guy on blast that he basically went into hiding and he is credited for forming or being one of the original founders of the Islamic State, aka ISIS. So America created another problem. Well, was one of the reasons that one problem existed. And basically, they went and created another one. They created another problem. And that's that's what the follow-up to 9-11 was. Was that there was another issue that was created because of the because of American incompetence to a certain extent. Um, and I'm not even trying to be angry at the American government. Like, I genuinely went into this episode and genuinely did a lot of research into thinking, like, okay, I want to keep this balanced. And I want to also, but I also want to, like, crap on the American government because they did some stuff wrong that I already know. But I also want to look into this as objectively as possible and give Bush his credit where it's due. And I will give Bush his credit where it's due because his credit is where, is at the beginning. I think his response, his initial response at the beginning 10 out of 10. He did good. Good job, George. But when this whole thing just kept unraveling, 01, 02, 03, the more years that went by, the more it just became utterly ridiculous. And the fact is, I mean, we can't put our Democratic politicians aside from this too, because Joe Biden and Hillary Clinton supported the Iraq war because they believed that the WMD was real. I don't know. I don't know. I, I guess the intelligence was picked and chosen. There was a lot of weird political stuff that went on with the WMD stuff. And and obviously, like, the, I think Bush and Cheney had their own um, intentions with trying to get WMD because or trying to get into Iraq because of the oil and the resources that they could and the money that they could make. Uh, so, yeah. But honestly, I'll tell you one of the takes that I've had from this whole thing. I had a teacher of mine uh, tell me that. All American presidents tried to do their best when it came to defending this country. And I believed him for a while. Besides Donald Trump, he was talking about it. He was mentioning basically everybody else. He was like, every American president tried their best. So you can't doubt them on that. And I, I believed him for a while. I said, okay, you know, maybe that is true. Maybe American presidents really do try their best and, and they're putting their best foot forward. And I certainly think that most have. But there's a few. George Walker Bush. Donald J. Trump, you know, Bill Clinton to a certain extent, <laughs> like Reagan. <laughs> there's a few. There's a few that have definitely been Obama even to a certain extent. There's a few of these guys have messed up, man. I'll tell you that. And I don't necessarily think that they're putting their best foot forward all the time because I also think that when money comes, when money comes, a lot of things change. So 
that's what I'll say to that. I don't I I've lost a lot of faith in the American political system. I used to be someone who was a massive believer in it, but you know, as time goes on and I feel like as I grow older, like wow, this is <sighs> they made so many glaring errors. Anyway, I'm gonna move on to my next topic, which is going to be interesting. Osama bin Laden. Okay. You can't talk about the 9-11 attacks and this whole war on terror if you don't talk about the man that the United States had basically been trying to get for years in Osama bin Laden. You can't you can't talk about 9-11 without talking about Osama bin Laden. And I know Osama bin Laden is like the equivalent of like a Voldemort type figure in the United States. You know, everyone talks about, oh, like you can't mention his name. Like if you mention the name bin Laden, people's eyes bug out, right? Like that. <laughs> like real big. Um, you can't, you can't it's a it's a sore subject, I guess, in Americans' hearts. But we have to talk about something. And I need to make something very, very clear about Osama bin Laden. Osama bin Laden was a horrible person. That's the first thing I want to make clear. Osama bin Laden is a fucking horrible, terrible, no good person. Okay. He's up there. He's up there. He's a, he's like class A, absolute asshole, right? Terrible human being. Um, That does not make him, that does not, what do you call He's still one of the smartest people to have ever existed. He may be a terrible human being, a trash person. He's still one of the smartest people to have ever friggin' existed. I mean, let's look at what this guy did. Look at what this guy did. Hold on one second. This dude, Osama bin Laden, was literally running the show of a worldwide terrorist organization okay for t almost 15 years he was orchestrating attacks in third world countries he was he even ran the world trade center bombing he took credit for that he was running attacks all over the freaking globe and basically i mean <laughs> most foreign intelligence had him on his had them on their radar at some point but they couldn't get to him they couldn't get to him he was like he was playing a really really good game. I mean, they couldn't get to him. They had, he had every foreign intelligence agency after him at some point. I mean, in the nineties, even like they, they kind of knew what was up and they still couldn't get him. I mean, he ran the show and let's talk about the people that he convinced to run these attacks. Okay. These weren't just, you know, poor boys that were playing, you know, in the street in Afghanistan and in Yemen and Saudi, like these are smart motherfuckers that he convinced to, do these crazy, unheard of, horrible things. Okay. These aren't just like dumb people. These aren't, these aren't uneducated village boys. These are very, very smart kids. The, the guys he convinced to do, to run these attacks, to run 9 11. Okay. Let me, let me put this into context. Two of the lead hijackers on 9 11 had master's degrees. Master's degrees. I know like there are a lot of dumb people with master's degrees out there for sure. And I'm not trying to like hate on the people that do have master's degrees. I know a lot of people that have master's degrees. But this guy convinced people with, I'm trying to point out that these guys had book smarts. They were working professionals in Europe. A lot of them were working at architecture firms, electrical engineers. Like I'm talking like these were working normal people who were working nine to fives, had advanced degrees, grew up in pretty secular households. It wasn't like they're also like their households were super religious, like their parents... Like one of the main hijackers grew up in Egypt in like a secular Muslim household where he was basically exposed to a lot of things. Uh, you know, his parents drank. They weren't like the most, you know, super conservative Muslims. They were very progressive Muslims. So like, I mean, in terms of that, he 
like he was able to convince people who had pretty big worldviews to do crazy shit. Which, I mean, you have to have a tremendous power of language, a tremendous power of persuasion to be able to do all that. I mean, I don't know. I mean, a single person that could do that in today's society. I really don't. Um, but anyway, that was all before 9-11 and he incurs these attacks. And then post 9-11, let's talk about Osama bin Laden post 9-11. The American government had spent, has spent to this day, 2021. So, you know, has spent a trillion dollars, a trillion dollars, trillion. I'm telling a trillion dollars. It's the most expensive war ever thing ever to have ever existed in Afghanistan. They spent a trillion dollars in Afghanistan. Okay. And they'd spent money and resources and gave the Afghani troops whatever they wanted and everything, everything that you could ever imagine. But for 10 years, for 10 years, 2001 to 2011, Osama bin Laden ran all over the Middle East, ran away from the American government, ran, 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 and played this country like a freaking fiddle. He did. And he played most of it foreign intelligence agencies. At that point in 2001, everybody was after him. He took advantage of political relationships with Pakistan to stay there. He took advantage of the corrupt nature of Afghanistan to find places where he could hang out there. Like, he, not every dude could do this. Like, not every ordinary, like, human being could find a way to manage to escape multiple foreign intelligence agencies who are dumping millions and trillions of dollars into finding you and he did it for 10 years he did it for 10 whole years before the cia and seal team six finally got him he did that i mean you have to admit like not every human being would be able to do that like not every smart person would be able to be like oh or like not every like normal human being would be able to run away from america would be able to convince very smart you know uh, big worldview, open-minded guys to do terrorists, to, to commit these horrible atrocities in society. I mean, he did a lot. Osama bin Laden did a lot. But that does not take away from the fact that he is an absolutely trash human being. And I want to make that evidently clear. He is a horrible person. There is no doubting that. It's bin Laden, Saddam, Joseph Stalin, Adolf Hitler, Benito Mussolini, probably all in that class of just the worst human beings to have ever existed. I'm sure there's more, right? Cecil Rhodes, maybe. There's there's a few more who are in that class A of horrifyingly terrible human beings. Osama bin Laden is one of those people. But he's also one of the smartest people to have ever lived. I mean, I, that's a take. That's a take. Do, it, do with it what you will. But that's how I feel when it comes to Osama bin Laden and all of the things that he's done. Speaking of Osama bin Laden, we have to talk about the emotions surrounding 9-11 because this is, this is a key point that I really want to talk about when it comes to emotions and how people view 9-11 um, in this regard. When, obviously, September 11, 2001 happened. People were hella emotional. It makes sense. I need water, too. Um, people were very emotional when September 11th happened, and it makes sense. I understand that the country was emotional. I understand that the nation was emotional. I understand why. I think we all do. You have this horrible atrocity that had never happened before happen. Um, 
and people were extremely just, you know, mad at the world, mad at these terrorists, mad at, you know, foreign nations that this was allowed to happen on their watch. Like, I get that. I would have probably been the same way. But this was the problem I was mentioning earlier. Is George W. Bush acted in response to 9-11 like a normal American civilian would have? Which is the problem. I feel like that's the problem. You guys might be thinking, oh, he was reflecting the actions of the American people. No, as a leader, that's not what you do. As a leader, you have to make the call, be rational, and make a decision that impacts both parties. Or that that helps your country in the long run, okay? The American people may be pissed off with you. They may be like, break off. You're the worst. You're like, blah, 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 okay? But if you're going to end up putting your country in a better position four years from now, people will see it at some point or another. You may not get reelected. And that's what comes with the risk, right? That's where you run into your own personal gain versus the country's overall long-term gain. And George W. Bush, I think, and at the end of the day, decided to go with what would the country want versus what he would want. And I think our whole leadership did that. It's Democrats and Republicans in 2001 got emotional. And it's for good reason. I mean, it was the first time that something like this would have happened. I cannot promise you that if I was a leader of this country, I would have been emotional and rational. I would, or rational, sorry, not emotional. I cannot promise you that I would have been that way. I don't know necessarily if I would have. But I think that's the reason why we elect leaders, right? Is that I would like to think that a majority of this country elected Joe Biden so that if a situation like 9-11, if a situation like COVID were to happen again, Joe Biden would know exactly how to handle it. Biden would know, you know, would be cool under pressure and would be cool making decisions that pissed off American people, but advanced this country's, this country's interests in the future. That's what you hope, I guess, when you elect leaders. That's what I've come to. When I vote, I am not voting for someone who reflects. Of course, I'm going to vote for someone that tries to reflect my thoughts and beliefs. But are they? Uh, that's something I have to consider now after doing a lot of this research. Is Are they going to remain cool and calm under pressure if there's a national emergency? Are they going to remain... Are they going to be able to make decisions that I may not agree with in the short term, but advance this country's decisions in the long term? And that is something I think we should all consider when it comes to voting now. And I think it's something that's very interesting. And uh, and it's a take that I think we we could take from this event, even if we all of us weren't alive during 9-11. And maybe we've lost some of that emotion that we may have had. Uh, yeah. Maybe it's something that we need to consider for the future. So that is the emotions surrounding 9-11. So I want to bring it back. We talked a lot about the big picture. We talked about the follow-up to 9-11, the media, the narratives, Osama bin Laden, the emotions surrounding this whole event. So let's kind of reel it back into the micro, the small picture. Okay. And I kind of wanted to mention some local stories about 9-11 because it's been 20 years since this has happened, but there's also people that were affected by this. Okay. Me for a long time, I wouldn't look at the pictures of the of the men and women that were killed in this uh, in this horrible attack because I I couldn't picture it that way. I would not be I I couldn't do it because well I would make me I I knew that it would make me look at the attack differently, but also I don't think I was emotionally able to handle it. 
Um, and but I do think it's their perspective is super important as well. Um, and there's a couple of stories that I wanted to share, and I feel like their stories should live on. You know, even despite the horrible atrocities that happened on September 11, 2001, we should be able to celebrate these people um, 20 years on. So there are a couple stories of uh, people that I wanted to share. Uh, and for those of you that don't know, and this is what I was going to discuss earlier, there were four flights that crashed on September 11. So there were the two flights, uh, American 11 and uh, United 175, I believe, which crashed into the World Trade Center. Both of those flights were headed for L.A. I think three of the flights were headed for LA. So, and then the Pentagon flight, American 77 was also headed for LA. And, but there was one flight that was headed for the Bay area, uh, for San Francisco. And that was United flight 93. Um, and United 93 is a unique flight in that it was the one flight that didn't hit its intended target. Why is that? So during the flight, Passengers and the flight attendants got basically word and information that flights had been hitting the World Trade Center and eventually the Pentagon and were basically being warned from the ground up like there have been potent there have been hijackings. Uh, you guys need to be wary of that. Obviously, they figured out quite early on that their flight was also hijacked and several members of this flight decided that they were going to do something about it or die trying literally. Um, and that's exactly what they did. Uh, there was a passenger insurgency, so to speak, aided by flight attendants, and they attempted to try to take control of the cockpit. But unfortunately, when they got control or as they got control of the cockpit, the terrorists crashed the plane into the ground rather than letting them, you know, take control of the plane. Uh, so unfortunately, all were killed on board. But I want to mention a couple of the stories from this flight. Uh, there's a couple stories from this flight, and then I want to briefly mention someone on American 11. Um, so the first person I would like to mention is a guy by the name of Todd Beamer. Uh, Todd Beamer, the reason I want to mention Todd Beamer is that, yes, he grew up in Chicago, and he, you know, big Chicago sports fan. Um, but he also graduated high school from Los Gatos High School, which is, you know, literally f seven minutes from where I live. Um, so he's technically from here. And he was a part of that passenger insurgency. He was, in fact, one of the leaders on Flight 93. They came, he came up with this catchphrase. Uh, there's a catchphrase on Flight 93 called Let's Roll. And that was based on Todd Beamer. Uh, that was one of the last things that he said uh, when it came to that. And he was a part of this passenger insurgency that basically potentially stopped this plane from hitting the Capitol building, which could have been very destructive. Um, and that is, that is crazy to think about. Uh, and again, like I was reading his story and he's just as ordinary a guy as it comes, you know, he had a family, he had a wife, two kids, uh, that he was raising in New Jersey. He had, I was coming to San Francisco for a business trip and he was going to take a red eye on the way home so he could spend some more time with the kids, uh, family man, you know, just a normal human being like one of us. And unfortunately he was, you know, uh, the victim to this horrible atrocity that took place. Um, and yeah. I think the and the other story I want to share is this guy by the name of Mark Bingham, who was also one of the leaders of the passenger insurgency on Flight 93. Uh, he's actually from Los Gatos. He grew up in the San Jose area, uh, graduated Los Gatos High School in 1988. Um, he was an aspiring filmmaker uh, and he was coming to the Bay Area because he wanted or he was going to go to his frat brother's wedding. Uh, speaking of which, he graduated from Cal Berkeley. 
uh, back. I don't know the year, but he graduated from Berkeley. Um, and yeah, he's a, he's a, he's a South Bay kid. Um, and you know, he, he was also a normal person. Uh, he enjoyed rugby, um, you know, and he was big into, uh, playing rugby. He played rugby for Los Gatos high school. I didn't know they had a rugby team until, uh, I started looking into Mark Bingham and his mom and him had a beautiful bond, which has been, uh, uh, portrayed in a documentary, I believe, or in a movie. Um, and his mom, since Mark's death, has been involved with several LGBTQ rights organizations. And Mark was actually, uh, I believe, was part of the LGBTQ community in the 90s, which is something that was uh, looked down upon at that time uh, in history. So that's really cool. And he's actually buried in Saratoga. So <laughs> again, not too far from my house, went to high school in Saratoga. Uh, at the Madronia Cemetery, which is about a five-minute drive from the high school. And he was also a part of this passenger revolt, like I mentioned earlier. Um, and then the last name I want to bring up is Betty Ong. Uh, she was uh, a flight attendant on American 11. She's from. She's not from the South Bay. She's from San Francisco. She grew up in Chinatown. Um, and I was reading about her story today, and her family uh was basically talking about like the 20 year anniversary of 9-11 and how it was so difficult to move on and all of this stuff uh but she is credited for giving uh basically letting people know that like 9-11 was happening she was one of the first people to be like my plane our plane is hijacked the pilots are stabbed we don't know where this plane is headed blah 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 and that's got what got picked up eventually by the white house and um washington dc so she's credited for that and betty ong is also there's also, I believe, a church or a school named after her, which is awesome. And uh, there was a story about her dad who, until his death, basically waited, watched the TV and cried and waited for his daughter to come home safely in the days after the attack. Um, and, you know, that's obviously horrible uh, to see that happen um, and to hear about that. But, of course, there are so many more 9-11 stories. I mean, there's too many to count. Uh, you know, there was, I saw one girl who was a student at Santa Clara university who was 20 years old with my age when the attack happened. Um, you know, but I wanted to mention a Beamer and Bingham in particular, because those two were literally, they grew up five minutes from where I live, right? Five, seven minutes from where I live. Um, and I always believe that these names as well as the other survivors should never have been forgotten. Um, as they, these these three that I mentioned, Betty, uh, Todd, and Mark, are people who attempted to fight back against these terrorist attacks when literally everything was going wrong. Um, and they were extremely courageous, but unfortunately were victims of this awful, awful attack. So, yeah. Um, but I thought it would be really important, and I think it's an important perspective to share these local stories because it really, like, humanizes the issue, right? I felt like for... 40 minutes I was looking at it from such like a broad view but like when you just put the microscope on it's like wow like the people that were affected by this are are just they could be human beings like us you know like any one of us could have been on that plane you know this is the craziest freaking part like how many of us get on planes every day obviously with COVID now it's less but before like pre-pandemic you would get on a plane and not really expect anything so it's like blows your mind when you just kind of like think about it and be and really be like wow like that could have lit literally been any one of us who was going to the east coast or coming back from the east coast to come home or whatever it was you know so it's just crazy stuff um and the last topic i want to talk about um and bringing it back to us 
and this generation is how do we talk about 9-11? How do we relate to 9-11, right? I was born in 2000. Most of my friends were born in 99, 2000, or 2001. My brother's friends were born in 94, 95, 96. So they were like five to seven years old when it was happening. So maybe they mentioned, they remember snippets of it. I don't necessarily think that they remember the whole thing, which, I mean, I don't blame them because it was, you know, so many years ago and they were very young. So my point is a lot of this generation that's now, you know, in their twenties, um, doesn't really remember what happened on 9-11. And we're starting to lose that. You know, I think most of the people I talk to that have really clear stories when it comes to 9-11 are in their forties, you know, are our parents' age. Uh, You know, they were young. My dad was celebrating his 39th birthday the day before and woke up uh, at five in the morning when he found out that 9-11 was happening and watched in horror on his TV, right? With, With my brother and my mom. Like that, that, that we can't relate to that story because we weren't there. We can't relate to those emotions because we were literally a year old. Most of us were a year old. Some of us weren't even born. Some of us were three. So how do we relate to this issue? And this is where I was thinking about this a lot. Um, I feel like every generation is bonded by a significant event in history. And I feel like for our parents, that was 9-11, 100%, right? It's the event that basically everyone in America and basically everyone in the world watched in horror. It was the first live terrorist attack that everybody saw on television. Uh, it was America being under attack. Um, and it bonds people together because you see that and everyone has that shared experience, right? Of humanity, of watching the planes crash into the World Trade Center, the Pentagon, you know? Um, and they, our parents had that. We didn't necessarily have that as, as, cause we were all young, you know, I don't blame us. And so I was thinking to myself, I was like, what is our event? I feel like we didn't have one, you know, for the longest time. I was like, oh, gosh, is it the great recession? Like, is it, there wasn't, there wasn't like a specific day that I remember the great recession. Maybe there were experiences within that, you know, was it, uh parkland was it sandy hook was it one of these school shootings that's what i used to think it was was it but then in 2016 and for a long time i thought it was donald trump being elected and i was like that has to be it but then march 13th 2020 hit and that was essentially what i like to mark this quote-unquote start of covid was when everybody started mass moving back to their hometowns and from college or just you know was basically stuck at home from that point i'd like to say march of 2020 is the is our 9-11 but you can't really relate the two they're very different but march of 2020 is our event i think it's covid covid has to be the event that bonded us together um you know i it's it's an event that li- literally everybody, I'm talking every single person was affected by it. Not every single person in this world has probably worn a mask for at least one day of their life. If they haven't, they're lying, right? Like, I feel like every single person has had some experience, uh, has had some family member, has had some friend who has been affected by COVID, right? COVID, COVID has ex- happened and, ex- and like existed in all of our lives. doesn't matter if you're rich, doesn't matter if you're poor, doesn't matter if you're in the middle it's hit everybody, right? People are forced to work from home now. Like it's, people have been affected in some way, shape or form. It's weird. I feel like our parents have had two events now, right? They had 9-11 where they got to see this whole 
crazy thing happen. And then they had COVID where they got to see another crazy generational event happen. So they've lived through a lot. <laughs> I mean, if you think about it, um, I just hope, and I was thinking about this the whole time when I was, you know, doing research for the episode and recording this episode was, I really hope we can have a better response to COVID than we did to 9-11. And Donald Trump's response to COVID was obviously, you know, heavily criticized, probably one of the reasons he lost the election, because I do partially believe subconsciously Americans are like, hell no, we cannot have someone respond to a national, a national disaster like the way that was, that, that we responded to 9-11. We can't have that happen. And I think Donald Trump may have been a better wartime president because the enemy, you know, you could just throw shit at the enemy, right? It's a physical enemy, but COVID is an invisible enemy. So it's really difficult to fight. Um, and you need to like have put people's brains together and put brain power together and communicate and do all of these things to figure out how to battle this invisible enemy. I feel like COVID COVID is so strange that way because I feel like we're so used to as Americans, just like, oh, it's a physical enemy. Just kill it. Blah. Like punch it in the face, right? Like it's, it's right there. Like, just send the military. Like, we spent 33% of our budget on defense. Maybe maybe half of that should go to biological defense now with COVID. Shit, I don't know. But with COVID, like, you can't throw a nuclear bomb at COVID and be like, go away. <laughs> like, that doesn't happen anymore, you know? Um, and I hope the response will be better. I think it will be because the enemy is invisible now. And you can't just throw a bomb at this enemy. Um, and I guess that's what we can hope to end this episode on a little bit of hope is that we can only hope that this, that COVID, uh, and the response to COVID in the years to come and now is going to be better than the response to, uh, the horrible disaster that was 9-11 was, but it's been 20 years since 9-11. I encourage every single one of you to do a lot of self-reflection this week. Uh, to talk to your parents about where they were, because I always love hearing those 9-11 stories. That's why I put that Instagram poll out. And then I quickly realized, like, wow, like no one is going to be able to respond to this because they were all like between the ages of zero and seven. Right. So I feel like people don't remember. Um, but, you know, uh, anyway, uh, I really hope you guys do a lot of reflection this week. I know I am uh, going to be thinking about all the stories that I've heard going to be thinking about the documentary I watched, all the research that I've done, all how how it affects today's events that are happening in Afghanistan. Um, I think it's a good context reset. And I think we're looking at it from the right angle. Uh, and I, I can only hope that an event like 9-11 never happens again. I asked my dad the other day, I said, dad, do you think 9-11 would ha could happen again? And he said, maybe not. He gave me an interesting answer. He said, maybe not in the form of planes hitting an object. Maybe that won't happen because of TSA and obviously all the ridiculous amounts of security that are happening now. But maybe the new age is like a cyber attack or like a biological warfare attack. And not to be like crazy, you know, sad or anything, but like maybe that is the new future. But I want to end this on a positive note. And uh, and I think we've come a long way since 9-11. I think that's one of the good things that I can say that has happened in this country in the last 20 years. We've come a long way. And I think we should be proud of what we've accomplished, but I think we should also have a lot of work to do. Um, and yeah, that's all I have. Uh, I hope you guys enjoyed the episode. If you guys enjoyed it, feel free to like and subscribe. Uh, if you guys uh, want to follow me on all other Spotify or all other podcasting platforms, check me out on Spotify. Check me out on um, Apple Podcasts. Basically, anywhere you can find your podcast, I will be there. I'll be editing this into clips too on TikTok and on YouTube, so you can consume it in a shorter format. Uh, yeah, 
that's all I have. That's all I have. I hope you guys enjoyed it. Uh, not to keep your mood too down, but yeah, I hope it was a good episode. And I hope you, I hope you can, I hope you think about 9-11 when September 11th does hit in a mere few days. Uh, so yeah, uh, I'll see you soon and I hope y'all have a good one. Peace.